If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Facts of Assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. In today's podcast, Helena Cronin, Professor of Darwinian Philosophy at the London School of Economics, will be using statistics to explore the gender divide in today's workplace. Why are most professions and their specialties typically men's or women's? And why, though the sexes are equally intelligent, are there different male-female distributions at all? What's more, why men at the top? Why the pay gap? And why are such patterns universal, transcending countries and cultures? Now, according to the conventional wisdom, the answer is discrimination against women, biases and barriers, stereotypes and gender roles, ghettoizing and groupthink. This has long driven feminist thinking, and now it's become mainstream, the orthodoxy. Well, just look at the professions, monstrous, male-female discrepancies in distribution. Women are clearly ghettoized. Nurses, 90% female, but engineering, 91% male. Teachers, 74% female, but surgeons, 73% male. Such gross segregation surely must be prejudice. Dig down further with any, within any profession, and the worse it gets. Consider medicine. Women in public health, OBS and gynae, paediatrics, stereotypically female. Meanwhile, exactly the same proportions of men dominate anesthetics, radiology, surgery. As for engineering, well, civil engineering scrapes 13%. Most other specialties, too underrepresented even to register. These are government figures, ONS figures. Of all managers, women are only 33%. However, why is social services then 77% female? And similarly, healthcare and human resources. And why some male enclaves of 90%? These disparities have been widely opposed. Government reports, legal sanctions, 
anti-bias training, female quotas, and much, much more. And yet the change, if anything, if any change at all, is conspicuously slow, which just shows how deep-rooted, how very institutionalized the problem is. Or does it actually show that? No, it's nonsense. It's utterly misconceived. It's not those bald facts that are mistaken. It's the interpretations behind them, or rather, the misinterpretations. They bear no resemblance to real causes in the real world. Now, the key to that real world is science, in particular, the science of sex differences. It provides an immensely powerful framework, explanatory, predictive, testable. And it demonstrates that conventional wisdom, although it's so firmly established and widely believed, is profoundly wrong in almost every respect. There's an experiment in which sex-stereotyped toys, trucks and dolls, very sex-stereotyped, were given to mixed-sex groups. And I'm sure that you'll guess correctly which sex preferred which. But in this experiment, the males and females were vervet monkeys. Now consider newborn babies. Even at one day old, girls prefer a human face and boys prefer a mechanical mobile. Now, clearly, neither monkeys nor babies had been socialized, stereotyped, ghettoized, or whatever. Rather, those findings capture an evolved sex difference in interests. Women are more interested in people, men more interested in things. And by things, I mean any rule-bound sort of system. It can be mechanical, something very material in the world, like manipulating objects, or it can be very abstract, like applying algorithms. Of all psychological sex differences, the people-thing sex difference in interests is one of the largest of all psychological sex differences, so it's a very big division between men and women. The evidence for this, and for all evolved sex differences, is, I assure you, very weighty. Now, let's go to sex at work. In medicine, females are clustered in people-oriented specialties, males in high-tech, and that's getting very high-tech now and very male, and the same with surgery. As for the egregious case of engineering, well, civil engineering is by far the most people-oriented of all engineering. It provides schools and sanitation and water and transport. So 13% of women in engineering did enter their preferred specialty. There were no biases or barriers. So surely not entering the other specialties was also choice. Similarly with managers, women choosing people over things. Isn't all this looking less like discrimination and a bit more like choice? What's more, these people-things differences hold across the entire workplace, not just the professions and so on. Even so-called elementary occupations, that's unskilled work. That's almost 50-50 male-female. But look at the people-things distribution. Lollipop ladies, 91%. But construction, refuse and salvage, street cleaners, 
women too few to register. And the people things difference also holds very robustly however far you dig down within specialties. In our research, we've tried looking for counterexamples. You apparently spot one, then you realize it's not a counterexample because it's partly a thing's interest and partly a female interest. And similarly, internationally, across hugely varying cultures and welfare systems and econ economies and politics and financial rewards and more, um, you get that same pattern robustly. What's more, a person's interests are, surprisingly, I always think, the most powerful predictor of their entire career. It's more predictive even than talents. When it comes to career interests, that people think sex difference is absolutely huge. It's by far the largest of any other career interests. And these are enormous inventories done in great detail. And that one always comes as the one that divides um, the sexes most. And in spite of immense social change, that sex difference in vocational interests hasn't diminished at all since records started, which is nearly a century ago. Now, consider the evidence of how women did choose professions as soon as they could choose, because of course women didn't have any choice until relatively recently. In the early 1970s, women were extremely rare in the professions. As recently as that, vets were less than 10%, solicitors less than 5%, engineers less than 1%. And then women started to get degrees and they entered the professions en masse. And now, just four decades later, the professions as a whole are 50% female. But have women made the same choices as men? No, manifestly not. Overwhelmingly, women have chosen, as they themselves put it in lots of questionnaires, teaching and helping people and other living things. Hence, vets 62%, engineers 9%. At this point, it seems to me that the question becomes, what on earth would you have to believe in order to try to maintain that this is not differential male-female choice? That it's the result of a massive male conspiracy and worldwide, that it's a monumental epidemic of female false consciousness. Even among, remember, we're talking about the most talented, educated professionals, and then even across all advanced economies, because as I said, internationally the same patterns or maybe both acting some sort of indomitable male hegemony and females globally succumbing, globally succumbing to mind control. Clearly, it's none of those things, it's interests. And yet, the conventional wisdom stubbornly insists that women's occupational dispersion is clear evidence of discrimination, of socialization, stereotyping, ghettoizing. The possibility that women's own interests might be a cause, I know this is astonishing, but I know the literature, it's not even raised the possibility that women's own interests come into it, let alone that those interests might not be identical to men's, let alone the reason for it. So here's a stringent test between the conventional wisdom and what I've been saying. How do women choose in what's 
widely agreed to be the most gender equal country in the world, Sweden. Well, for comparison, just I'll give you first, UK and USA compared with one another. They're very alike, UK and USA, in spite of notable economic and political differences. So dental hygienists, nurses, teachers, vets, legal professionals, architects, almost the same female percentages in these two countries. And it's the same drop as, as you go from people to things. Architects, IT specialists, engineers, all, all down at the things level and fewer women. Now for the contrast with Sweden, the most gender equal country in the world. Contrast? On the contrary, the choices are strikingly alike. So are women in the most gender equal country in the world victims of the same discrimination? Can't be that. Or rather, aren't they freely making different choices from those of Swedish males? And choices the same of those of women in less enlightened countries. Now, for conventional wisdom, that outcome is shocking. It's profoundly counterintuitive. Where there's greatest equality, women's choices should be far closer to men's and unlike those of women elsewhere. So Sweden is a stringent test and a major reputation. However, let's uh, be fair. Sweden has some much higher proportions of women in some areas. Aren't they anomalies to what I'm saying? No. These result either from extremely female-friendly institutions. The large school dental service is almost exclusively male, which accounts for having so many more dentists than UK or USA. Or they're artifacts of classification, which you have to dig around a bit to find. Architects is no longer a protected term in Sweden. It now includes engineering-free occupations, such as interior design. I don't know why quite that was done, but I have my suspicions. However, engineering is 22%. That does seem impressive. So has Sweden cracked what is generally and rightly regarded as the hardest case, the so-called STEM subjects, that's S-T-E-M, science, technology, engineering, maths. Has Sweden cracked that with the engineering? Well, let's break that down. It amounts to two questions. Is engineering really a far more popular female choice within the professions in Sweden than in the UK or USA? And second, how does its popularity among women compare with that among men, which is the comparison that we've been taking, of course. The combined figures are almost identical, around 7%. The STEM professions are not more favored by Swedish women than they are by US and UK women. Now, add the equivalent figures for males to get that comparison. Also nearly identical, 38 to 39%. The far lower proportions of women to men, obviously, are, as we'd expect, on a people's things sex differences, but they're wholly at odds with the ex expectations of conventional wisdom. That's another failure of a very stringent test. And what's more, far from having cracked the STEM problem, Sweden, once again, is identical to less gender-equal societies. And that leads to a very intriguing point, which I'm just going to mention briefly. According to conventional wisdom, 
women choosing freely will increasingly converge with male choices, working 50-50 male to female, side by side, same profession, same specialties. But that turns out to be wholly mistaken. Instead, as the science of sex differences predicts, there's systematic, predictable divergence. And there's increasing evidence that occupational divergence is just one instance of a wider male-female divergence in today's world. The more gender equal a country is, the greater some, not all, the greater some sex differences become. I'll give you one striking example. A study of 55 nations found that for sex differences in personality, the greatest male-female divergence is in the most liberal, most democratic, most equality-driven countries. So, as those barriers fall, the gaps widen and in ways that are predicted on Darwinian understanding. It turns out that difference is evidence not of oppression, not of discrimination, but of choice. And that brings us to policy. Just our one insight from that, the science of sex differences has proved to be richly explanatory and predictive. And that's solely a difference in interest, not even in talents or other career-related differences. And adding additional scientific insights, and you can explain far more, both about the distribution that we've been talking about and about other contentious differences, such as the pay gap and men at the top. By contrast, the conventional wisdom has no serious predictive or explanatory power. Where it can be tested, it fails spectacularly. spectacularly. Um, it collapses under scientific scrutiny. We've seen some examples just now. And to use sex differences in distribution as key evidence is completely specious. We've seen that evidence of disparity is not evidence of discrimination. Evidence of disparity tends to be the main evidence that is shown by conventional wisdom. But we've seen now that is not evidence of discrimination. In fact, it's evidence of choice, which makes you wonder about the pursuit of 50-50 and, um, and why this is being pursued. Because conventional wisdom began, rightly, with an injustice, women being denied choice just because they were women. But it's now morphed into a deeply misguided quest, a quest for sameness of outcome in males and females in all fields. And yet it seemed to be blithely unaware of this very alarming mission creep. So policies increasingly try to promote identical 50-50 outcomes without asking what on earth has that got to do with discrimination? Even the Institute of Physics, which should know better, Concerned about our desperate shortage of scientists, which is a deep concern, decided that the problem was, quotes, a gender imbalance in school science. So what was their solution? Get more boys out of science and into the humanities. And so that way you get greater, quotes, gender parity in both disciplines. That really was one of their suggestions. The quest for 50-50 trumped the quest for more scientists. The 50-50 policy is so incoherent that there are flagrant asymmetries that go unresolved. I'll just give you this example. The most dangerous and dirty occupations in the UK are male. There are too few women even to register. 
If 50-50 is really a serious goal, why not start here, where the greatest changes could be made, rather than in the professions where it's already 50-50, male, female overall? That really can't be taken seriously. 50-50 policy, indeed, rests on a thoroughly pernicious conflation of equality and sameness. And as we've seen, equality is not sameness. Finally, on science-free policy, it's no surprise that policies that spurn the very notion of sex differences persistently fail to achieve their goals. Well, how could they succeed when men's and women's life's priorities are not identical? Worse, science-free policy, because it turns its back on the real causes, it invites unintended consequences that are really downright perverse, outcomes that are directly at odds with the very goals that the policy is designed to achieve. The Nordic countries have for decades led the most gender equal policies and proudly led it. They now also have more perverse consequences than many gender less equal societies. For example, segregation, men and women in the labor market. Their labor markets, this is their This is their statistics and their comments, not mine. Their labor markets are among the world's most highly segregated by sex. In Sweden, only 14% of women and 5% of men have occupations with an even sex distribution. Otherwise, as you have seen, they're mostly like ours, but worse as well, if you think that's a problem, worse. And then men at the top, in the USA, 28% of CEOs are women. In Sweden, only 16%. Again, partly as a result of, quotes, gender equality policies. And the gender pay gap is very large at the top, extremely large at the top, much larger than here and in the USA and so on. And that's, again, because of particular gender equal policies. Well, it's a confluence of policies. And just to give you an example of how that works, The very generous, high-quality state childcare, which I'm not saying is a bad thing by any means, um, is organized around nine to five. And that's most readily found in the state sector. Hence, fewer female CEOs, because that's all in the private sector. And that's actually been called in certain academic papers, it's called a welfare state-based glass ceiling. So it sets a sort of glass ceiling for women because they're, they're in the state sector, so they're not going to be found in CEOs, relatively few women in the private sector. And that's the same reason for the large pay gap at the top, because that's where you get it in the private sector, and women aren't in the top at the private sector. So such policies have inadvertently created incentives that actually appeal to women, and they're very happy with that, but they undermine the major policy goals that these Nordic countries are trying for. My feeling is ignore science and you reap perverse results. Because if we want to change the world, if we really want to change the world, we must first understand it. And the Darwinian science of sex differences is absolutely essential for social policy, for such understanding. To understand statistics about males and females in particular, Darwinian science of sex differences really is essential. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. 
Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV, hashtag vital statistics. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can watch Helena give a talk on sex, science and stereotypes on the IAI TV player. Join us for our next podcast on the politics of love from former MP Charlotte Leslie. If you want to listen to more episodes, then subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. We always love to hear feedback, so please email us on podcast at iai.tv.